Have we got an NLT? Oh, yes. Yes. Good thinking, Batman. Sorry, you're not Batman. Um, yeah, I'm going, to I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to go from verse 12 to 26, because um, I think it just explains the whole setting, and I'm going to read it from the NLT. Okay, don't drop the tablet. Okay, here we go. Verse 12, I'll start with. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Now Judas had bought a field with the money he received from his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means field of blood. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms, where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is cho chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O oh Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. Okay. Uh, well, I know we've had two preachers on uh, Acts already, but I just wanted to reiterate the fact that this is such a special book in the Bible because it's the beginning of the story of the church, what the church is supposed to look like without a physically present Jesus. So it's that same story that we're a part of today. And we have a lot we can learn from this book. And I think it's, it's just as important the stuff that the apostles do wrong as the things that they do right. We have a lot to learn. Uh, this isn't the easiest a passage to preach from, but there is a lot in it. So hopefully there's a lot that can help us through this. Now, firstly, I, I don't want to ignore the most tricky part of this passage, which, of course, is Judas. Um, and I won't, go, 
I won't go into it in depth, in great depth, because there's a lot I want to say, and I have spoke about this before. But obviously, in this passage, the apostles are not very sympathetic of Judas. What he did was dreadful. But I do want to repeat what I've said before, which is that I believe that if Judas had turned back to Jesus at any point, even after doing what he'd done, then he would have been welcomed back with open arms. You know, if you read what Jesus says about forgiveness and what, um, what he says about his father, about what God says about forgiveness, it's so clear, he talks about it so much, that I cannot believe that suddenly there's a switch and, oh no, no, that's too bad. That he would suddenly start bearing grudges now. I, do, I believe that everyone is redeemable and that there is always hope. And I really don't think that Jesus ever gave up on Judas. I think it was the other way around. But tragically, of course, Judas wasn't willing, as far as we saw, to turn back to Jesus. And here we are, the 12 down to 11. And this is a problem because when the kingdom of Israel was set up, God did it through the 12 tribes. And when he is re-establishing the kingdom, when it's going to be restored, restored, then God begins with the 12 apostles. Now, something I really quite liked in this passage was the fact that the remaining apostles, they were so ready to just welcome another person into the 12, that they were ready to co-opt somebody in. Um, and I, you think that they could have been quite entitled you know, they could have been a bit protective and a bit defensive of their position. You know, we, we were the 12. We were chosen. Um, and I think maybe earlier on in their journey with Jesus, they might have been a bit more entitled a bit about it. But I think the experience of seeing their king making the ultimate sacrifice, it must have had such a massive effect on them. And when we see what Jesus has done and what it teaches about us about what the kingdom is really like, then our pretensions, you know, the things that we cling on to, they end up looking pretty ridiculous. Uh, now, I said earlier that we've got lots of lessons that we can learn from the book of Acts um, that can help us as modern-day believers and the church as a whole. Um, and one of the lessons that I felt jumped out at me from this passage is the fact that the Bible can speak truth to us now, today. Peter says in verses 16 to 20, Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through David Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, Let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, Let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. Now, I loved Charles's talk the other week. He was speaking on the, the second part of... Um, of the first chapter of Acts. And he was talking about how heaven is not just some distant place somewhere over there, but it's 
a different dimension of the world we know. It's the deeper level of the world we know. And I was reminded when he, when he was talking about this, and then when I was reading about it in the the Acts for Everyone book, I was reminded about all the times you can see that's true in the Bible. Like when Elisha prays that his servant's eyes be opened so he can see what's really going on, and he sees that they're surrounded by this army, and that's the reality actually. And you know when Jacob has that dream and he can see, he sees angels ascending and descending to heaven. The portal, the gate of heaven. Um, it's right there. And, and that's why he names it Bethel. He's like, God's right here. This is God's house. Um, and I was thinking about, yeah, the time that angels appear to people in the Bible, but also to people today, when heaven just breaks through. The kingdom of heaven is not so very far away. And I think that the Bible itself is a really good representation of this. So if you think about it, it's just black and sometimes red writing on white paper. And it's something that a lot of people have in their house. But it is so much more than that. Through the words of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, just as he spoke to those who wrote it. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the other thing I loved about what Charles said, which actually really helped me, was he said about how the heavenly realm, the heavens, they're outside time. They don't conform to our rules, which I th think explains how in the Bible, things written thousands of years ago can speak into our lives and situations right now. Not only in a general kind of way, but in the way that will sometimes bring you to tears and help you to realize that you are fully known. Now, of course, I recognize that there's a danger that people can and people often have just plucked bits out of the scripture out of context, and they've used it to back up their own views. And we have to be discerning. The Bible can't be used like a textbook. It can't be used like a mallet. And it shouldn't be used as a tool just to massage our emotions. But we can't be so afraid of getting it wrong that we do not make the most of this amazing resource that we have. I don't really like generalizations because it sounds a lot like law. But I think that we are at our safest when we approach the Bible with the whole of Scripture in our minds and with the Holy Spirit stirring in our hearts. And something I struggle with a lot is that people have often used, and they still do, use the Scriptures to defend the strong keeping the weak down. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, the thing that screams out to me from every page is social justice. You know, the case of the poor, the needy, the weak, the barren. That they're going to be lifted up. And that the proud and the strong are going to be put in their proper place. And it just breaks my heart that people pull out verses from the Bible about servanthood to justify slavery. Or they pull out verses from the Bible about the kingdom of God to justify racism. 
Or they pull out verses from the Bible about when Israel were so far from God that they did dreadful things. And they take those verses and they use it to justify sexism. And I remember when I was quite young reading Judges and I was distraught when I read it. Um, because the way women are treated in that book is horrendous. And it didn't seem like it was saying that it was wrong. And it scared me because I thought, well, if this is in the Bible, what does that mean? But I was reading the Bible through, and actually, sometimes that's quite good <laughs> because the next book after Judges is Ruth, where a woman, a foreign woman, has a whole book named after her and devoted to her. And it's, it like praises her character and her behavior, and she becomes part of Jesus' family tree and part of his story. And I read that and I was just so relieved because I think that was God putting in there, despite the fact that men wrote the Bible and it used to be quite rough for women, he put it in there um, to show what he thought of women. Now, I, I remember Paul, Paul Winter uh, spoke on the Bible as a whole a little while ago and I found that really helpful because he explained how a lot of the Old Testament is the history of God's people getting it wrong. They were given the law, and then there's the history of how they did not keep it. And yeah, I found that really helpful because you could actually pluck out some verses from the book of Judges and you could justify a whole lot of stuff if you read it out of context. But when we read it in its context, we realize that it is a comment on just how far the chosen people had strayed from their calling. So, of course, we do have to be careful when we're using the Bible. But I do want to stress again, we can't let the fear of failure stop us from making the most of this beautiful gift of God. No one knows the Bible completely and perfectly. And we do all have to start somewhere. And I have experienced so many times for myself and in the lives of other people around me, the words of the Bible jumping out of the page and hitting the nail on the head in your life. And it sheds a light on a situation in, in an unmistakable way. And it's so clearly the Holy Spirit speaking. And it does confuse us because how on earth can something that was written that many years ago be speaking to us right now in our circumstances? And to more than one circumstance in totally different ways. But I do think it's just like what Charles was saying. The heavenly realms do not conform to our earthly rules. If we could fit this in our head it wouldn't be heaven. And of course, if we need any more convincing, as always, you look at Jesus. What was Jesus doing? And he himself quotes the Old Testament all the time. Uh, he quotes from the same psalm that Peter, psalm, uh, Peter um, quotes in this passage. And of course, this is Jesus, and he did everything perfectly. And we know that a lot of the Old Testament was about him. It looked like it was about David Batchley. It was about... It seemed to be, have a deeper meaning about Jesus. And we accept that, and we know that, and the Jews know that. But actually, if you read it without the help of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't think that. It looks like it's about David. It looks like stuff's about Babylon. It looks, it looks like it's just black and white writing on a page. But actually, it's with the help of the Holy Spirit that you realize that it's got this deeper level. 
If you read it with no spiritual insight, it doesn't seem to be anything about Jesus at all. And I think that the, the New Testament writers and the apostles here, they obviously believe that the Old Testament scriptures can be applied to t- contemporary problems. And I do believe the same today for the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, another lesson I, I think that we can draw from this passage is that Jesus can still speak to us today with or without the Bible. In Acts 1, verse 2, Luke writes about the apostles he, Jesus, had chosen. So he's talking about those that Jesus chose when he was with them. And then the apostles say in verse 24, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. There is no difference in their minds between the decision that Jesus made when he was with them physically and the decision he was just about to make after his ascension. They expected him to speak, and he did. And again, I'm reminded of Charles' talk, where he reminded us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of, of God, and he's praying for us all the time. He's backing up our prayers all the time. And I think we can get into a bit of a rut, and we, we can do prayers where we, we say it, and we just think we're just throwing it up into the air, and maybe it sticks, and maybe it doesn't. And we can ask God something, but we can not stop long enough to listen for the answer, or maybe we don't expect him to answer. But he is listening, and he is speaking. And sometimes we just have to learn to be quiet enough to hear him, and to set aside the time to hear him. I remember somebody speaking about, I think it was when I was in Romania, how we have spiritual muscles as well. And like our physical ones, they need exercising to be able to perform at their best. And it can take a bit of effort, but it is so worth the effort. And then the last thing I wanted, the last lesson I wanted to talk about from this um, scripture is one that my mum helped me with. She helps me with my homework. (laughs) Um, So I told her that I was going to preach on this um, verse, and she was really excited. She was like, oh, I love preaching on that passage. I was like, really? Tell me all about it. Share me, with me your wisdom. Um, and she said that it's such a wonderful text for helping people to understand that God has different plans and callings for all of us. She said, and she said this, she said that Luke writes about the one who was not chosen in really great detail. And she calls, he calls him um, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. So, which apparently suggests that people who were reading this letter, they knew who he was. So it was like they were saying, uh, like Luke was writing, you know Joseph, the son of the Sabbath. You know, sometimes we call him Justus. You know the one. And, and it means that, that he was probably still around, that the church knew him and that he was still around or still known of when this was written by Luke. So it just really highlights the fact that he wasn't, just because he wasn't chosen he, as an apostle, he wasn't discarded, he just had another calling. And not being chosen for this role, it didn't cause him to turn away. It didn't end his walk with Jesus. He was still part of the story of the early church. So thank you, Mum, for that. <laughs> I was thinking about this, and it does make a lot of sense to me. I was thinking about in my own life, I'm not someone who's got a lot of ambition, really, in life. I just try to do 
what I'm doing well. But the area I probably have the most ambition is actually in the kingdom of God. So when I see something more, that there's something more to be had spiritually, I generally want it. And I think that that has really worked in my favor in some ways there. Um, yeah, my mum tells like my first word was more. And I really feel like that's a spiritual thing, actually. Come on, then, more, more. That I always want more. And it means that I ask God for things. Oh, I want that gift. Oh, I want that spiritual growth. I want that. And because he's a good father, he very often gives it to me. But there is a fine line here. I, we, must not become so wrapped up in the gifts that we ignore the giver. You know, the gifts are only good because they come from him and they help us to understand him more and to get closer to him and to bring more of his kingdom around us. And the same thing is true of our roles. We shouldn't be more interested in the calling that he chooses to give us than in the one who has called us to it. You know, I have to be, uh, be willing to listen when God says, no, that one's not for you. And actually, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you think of these chosen ones. Being an apostle meant, pretty much meant you were going to be martyred. There was a really good price, a big, really great price, to be paid for many callings. And I was reminded of the story in uh, Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 to 40. And I think it really shows how far the disciples came, how far the apostles had come. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So it's not even for Jesus to choose who has what role, it's God's. And of course, God is sovereign. He knows our hearts, he knows the hearts of everyone. And he knows who is best placed where. He knows why he's saying no to some things and what better things he's got for you ahead. And we can get hung up on titles and roles, but there are definitely parts for us all to play. And I just wanted, I, I was just thinking, the reason I read the whole bit was because I was thinking about, um, think about the people in that room. You have the chosen, the chosen 12, but then there's Mary, a woman, but she was the mother of Jesus. What a role to play. And then you have, oh no, David's crying, <laughs> sorry. Um, and then you have, um, yeah, Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. So she wasn't one of the 12. But goodness me, the stuff she saw, she was the first one to see Jesus risen. You know, these people weren't the chosen, but they had a part to play. And I just wanted to, yeah, I think something that I've been thinking about recently that really fascinates me is the fact that, 
Yeah, he, God works in different ways. He works in ways we don't expect. And, yeah, we think it's like tiered, you know. This person is the boss, blah, 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 blah. God doesn't see it like that. We're all just parts in, of the body in the kingdom. Um, and I just want us to consider the fact that Joseph, you know, in the Bible, I, I, me and John have often talked about Joseph. I struggle with Joseph in the Bible, as in the Old Testament, you know, the one with the coat, coat of many colors. He was like the golden boy. And I, I do struggle with him quite a lot. Um, but he was chosen from when he was young to, like, shape the future of Israel. So it's pretty important. But at, I, I only realized more recently, I think, that Jesus doesn't come from his family. <coughs> Sorry. Jesus is of the house of Judah. So Judah, who is the less, a less known brother. Sorry. <coughs> yeah. Judah, his lesser known brother, is the one who was... So I'm really sorry, I can't actually talk. Yeah, you would have thought that Jesus would have been Judas, uh, would have been Joseph's descendant, but in fact, God uses Judah. And even though Joseph has been this major player, it's through the line of Judah that Jesus comes. And he just does it in such unlikely ways. But I think it just goes to show that there are no bit parts in the kingdom of heaven. Right, I'll finish with a prayer. Ah, God, you're so lovely. I can feel you here today, and you're just, you're so loving, and you're so ready to be known. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can feel a bit overwhelmed by the world, and we can, be, we can feel like there's so much against us, and everything's such a mess. Um, but thank you that you lift us up on a rock, that you lift us above the waves. And that we don't have to be overwhelmed. And I just pray that you would break through into our lives and that we would we would just turn around to you and see that you're right there waiting for us. Thank you that you forgive us over and over again. And thank you that you speak to us and you want to include us in your plans. Thank you that we all have parts to play. Thank you that this isn't about tasks. This is about knowing you and falling in love with you and then sharing this precious love with other people. We love you, Lord. Amen.